And so if you will open in your Bibles to Mark, we will be in chapter 2 this morning. And the attempt was, is to make our way uh, to Mark chapter 3, verse 6. I'm doubtful that we'll be able to get there, but we'll do our best. You'll see on the back of your bulletin, if you're taking notes, I encourage you to do that. Uh, the, the title of the sermon and then the points don't seem to go together. Right. Gospel brings rest, and then bam, 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 I'm saying gospel creates conflict three times in a row. How does this jive? All right. What's going on here? And, uh, and we will see as we get going some of the things that we will see in terms of highlighting the rest and I'm sure you've felt like that before. You've ever been to a place, I know I have, for more times than I would like to count, where you know I needed something, was desperate for something, and didn't know how I was going to get that something, specifically even in the area of forgiveness. Uh, I think of all the different times I sinned and all the different ways I sinned against my parents. Uh, and wondering, this is going to be the things that the thing that ruins it for me, right? And uh, and really, just in anticipation for the wrath that would come after I had done something really stupid, and making my way back home, trying to discern if I was going to try to wiggle out of it by not being completely honest. But knowing that had I attempted that, my mom could read my mind. <laughs> I didn't realize that wasn't true till I was in college. Uh, but needless to say, I remember receiving that forgiveness. We see that here in the passage. And the elation and the freedom that comes from that. And maybe you've been in a place where you feel alone, isolated. Like you don't have a friend, right? And we see this kind of friendship, this kind of care here in the passage as we study Jesus' life. And on we go. And, and so as we reflect on that, we look at the healings that take place early in Jesus' ministry here in Mark 2 and 3. But in the middle of all that is this intense conflict. And we'll highlight that as we go along. If you'll go ahead and follow as I read, we're going to take the first 12 verses. When he entered Capernaum, again Mark chapter 2 verse 1, again after some days it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that... There was no room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them. They came to him, bringing in a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately, he got up, took the mat and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God saying, we have never seen anything like this before. And you can imagine that they hadn't, right? They had not seen anything like this before. As we move through these uh, these pages of scripture here this morning, these pa- this passage, Jesus is simply defining who he is. And he's doing so by living out his mission. Uh, And this places him in serious, life-threatening conflict with the religious establishment. It's interesting, actually, to see how just slight adjustments, and we won't take time to do this, but you could, just slight adjustments that Jesus could make and take in his approach that would ease his suffering. And that's something. And yet he doesn't. And so that it looks that he's almost just purposely antagonizing them. (laughs) Like poking at these guys. But I don't think that's it, actually. Uh, He's simply living out his mission. And they stand opposed to that. So this suffering servant, right, is, is so fixed on proclaiming the good news that he is not deterred, right? The lines are drawn again and again, and Jesus here in our passage shows, and throughout Mark, shows no signs of letting up. In fact, he uses the resistance of the religious establishment to highlight and teach that the old system is passing away. At the close of chapter 1, there in verse 45 We read uh, that Jesus, that word had gotten out about Jesus, that that he could no longer enter a town openly, right? And then beginning in chapter 2, we see that he has entered uh, Capernaum. He returns to Capernaum. People find out that he's home. And what happens? Crowds begin to gather. All right, so this is early on, and uh, crowds begin to gather, and we're introduced to this story uh, that there's this group, right, that didn't make it early enough. They must not have got the news early enough because Jesus is not entering town openly. He got there, and word trickled out, that's what I assume. And so these, there's this small group of people that didn't get there early enough to get the front row seats. In fact, when they get there, when they arrived, we just read, they couldn't even get inside the house. But this small group was desperate to see Jesus. Right? Just imagine yourselves being this group. Right? As the text says, this group at least included a paralytic and four who were carrying them. 
And they were the type of people, and maybe you're like this, I don't know, but you don't do a good job of taking no for an answer, right? And so the fact that they couldn't get inside the house, naturally they thought to themselves that they should climb on top of the house and dig a hole in this person's roof, right? That is not the natural conclusion, okay? And I know people, and I've heard it, I feel like there's a, there's, I understand their houses were different, but it's still not appropriate, okay, to dig holes in other people's roofs. Okay, so just to put that out there, it's a big deal, all right? Uh, they dig the hole, and they're like, you know what, we're going to lower this, our paralytic friend who can't walk, we're going to lower him by rope, okay, into... Uh, the center of Jesus, maybe the roof was low enough where they could, you know, held on to him. I don't know how they pulled it all off, but they did it. The point here, they are not easily turned away. Uh, their ambitions are not easily shut down, right? And think of that. Why? What are their ambitions? Why are they not easily turned away? And it makes us think, if we were just to pause right there, what about us, right? What are our ambitions? How quickly, how easily are we turned away? They were not. They were the kind of people whose hope burned like a fire that was not easily extinguished. What did this fire burn for, right? Why did they press in or rather climb up and dig a hole in someone else's roof? In order to do what? In order to get their friend in front of Jesus. This was their hope. It's what had them pressing on and pushing forward and not taking no for an answer. They were searching for what? Healing. That's right. Right? They had heard, they had come to a knowledge of who Jesus was and what he could do, and they believed. They believed. And this belief, it couldn't be shut down or ignored in them. And they would press on until their hope was realized, right? Because of their faith, see the connection, because of their faith, their pursuit of Jesus found no barrier. As I thought of that, it just made me think of how often in my walk, in my walk am I quick to allow barriers to become stumbling blocks in my pursuit of Jesus, right? How quick are we uh, allow barriers to kind of push us off course, push us off focus? What circumstances sort of uh, creep up into into our hearts, our minds, our homes, our lives that cause us to veer away from our only hope, which we have confessed as Christ? Right? They were coming after Jesus. Right? This was their faith. Right? Their faith was in Christ. He was their only hope. Verse 5 is clear about this. Jesus says of them. Look there. He says that he saw their faith. Right? And when he saw their faith, he told the paralytic, what? Sons? Your sin are forgiven. 
your sins are forgiven. Now, if we are simply listening from outside this setting and outside this context of this passage, we are thinking, what a great story. Okay, what's going to happen next? And we're moving on. We are not, right now in reading this, we are not offended in the slightest by Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven. But this is the gospel claim that creates the initial conflict in this section here. It creates a conflict that Jesus has and will continue to have with the religious establishment throughout his ministry. important as we reflect on this that we recognize the significance of Jesus saying to this person your sins are forgiven I think it's something that we simply find just so common because we sing about it and we talk about it and it becomes secondary when, in fact, it is the primary reason that we are drawn to Christ. It is the primary reason that we must come to Christ. And here, I know in my conversations with others specifically, I'm talking about with Christians, it is easy for us to come to a point, to hear something like this, even in this story, And to initially be disappointed. Wait, what do you mean his sins are forgiven? Uh, He needs to deal with the circumstances of this man. That's what's really important. Right? Can't you see he can't walk? You're ignoring his circumstance. Right? Right? And I don't think as this guy is sitting there, this paralytic is sitting here and Jesus says your sins are forgiven, I don't think Jesus is like, or excuse me, the paralytic is like, wait, that's not why I'm here. Right? I don't think he is. And and, and people speculated about what is he thinking and we could participate in that a little bit more. But, and I I will to this, that I want to say that he wasn't, right? He wasn't disappointed. Being in front of Jesus, hearing those words spoken, hearing them with the minded heart of faith that Jesus says he has, right? That is clear in the text. And I would say these words have never been spoken to him. And this paralytic is a sinner like you and I. Right? Like he had real sins, personal sins. And I think this moment, while he is still paralyzed, this is the most free he has ever felt. And I think in this moment that he's taken in by Jesus, like in what is happening, he has never been forgiven before. Not like this, not by the God man. And to hear those words, right, that minister to him. And they weren't just nice thoughts. They transformed and healed broken heart, broken soul. 
There was another group in there. And they heard this gospel claim of Jesus with a different set of ears. And they weren't ears of faith. They had a different attitude boiling up in them as some of the scribes are sitting there watching this unfold. Verse 6, they are thinking in their hearts. They're not saying anything, not yet. But they're thinking that Jesus is blaspheming and they're stewing. And verse 8, it says that Jesus perceived what they were thinking. He could tell. And he confronted their unbelief with what I would like to call a rational line of questioning. Look there. It says, why are you thinking these things? Jesus asked that question. Which is easier? He goes on. To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And I appreciate, and maybe it's easy to appreciate when it's not coming at you, right? But I can appreciate in reading that Jesus takes the time to cut right to the tension, right? Right through it. He was not afraid to confront them. And Jesus is questioning. The answer is obvious, isn't it? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Okay? Because no one can verify that. Right? But to say to someone who can't walk, get up and walk, right, you can verify the effectiveness of that statement. But you can't look at someone's soul to see if their moral slate, their offense against God, are wiped clean. Only God is able to do that. Right? So after the line of questioning that we see here in the passage uh, to these, these stewing scribes, Jesus says in verse 10, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went home in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God. We have never seen anything like this before. Here we have the faith of the friends, the faith of the paralytic, and the unbelief of the religious. The religious. Unbelief regarding religious things and teachings. Right? The religious are supposed to have belief. But when it comes to Jesus, right? They don't. It's sad, isn't it? And Jesus is highlighting this. Jesus is here, his physical miracles verified his moral miracle, gospel forgiveness. This man had been made whole. Not only were his legs useful, so too was his heart. Released from the bondage of the mat, heart, life, released from the bondage of sin. It's awesome. The moral miracle is more significant. This arguably, while it might be easy thing to say, it's actually the harder thing to do, that is forgive sins. In fact, had Jesus just healed, they wouldn't have felt, that is the religious establishment, would not have felt they had much against him. It wouldn't have created as much of a shockwave if he had just simply healed and moved on, right? But Jesus didn't come to, and this is really important for us in the application of 
of what we do in terms of our ministry here in the church, in terms of our energy as believers, right? Jesus didn't come to only heal physically, right? In fact, he didn't come to primarily heal people physically. He came primarily to heal people spiritually. This is the focus of his ministry, right? And the healing we all need See, Jesus didn't heal everyone, and Jesus today doesn't heal everyone. Not physically. But he does provide everyone with the healing that we all need, which is forgiveness of sins. In this instance, he heals physically. Man, in this instance, right, what we have here in front of us, he heals physically, that is, man's lesser problems, in order to highlight the spiritual healing he brings to man's greatest problem, which is our sin. He heals physically, verse 10, so that, see it, follow there, so that we may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Our biggest problem, church, is a sin problem. This is what we've just con- confessed as we we took this meal together, right? We we just ate this truth, okay? We we confess that our biggest problem is a sin problem, a separation problem, not a sickness problem. Our biggest problem is not a political problem. It's not a relational problem. It's not a financial problem. It's not a name the circumstance problem. It's not. That's not our biggest problem, right? The biggest problem of the man on the mat wasn't that he was confined to the mat, right? It was that his soul was confined to sin, was in bondage, and the same is true for us. The the biggest problem this week was not the weather, right? The Son of Man has come for the reason, this reason, to do a moral miracle for all humanity, to give each of us an opportunity to have right relationship with God. And he does that by dealing with our separation problem, which is a huge problem. It's a huge crisis for humanity to be separated from the God that created you. The religious establishment cannot and will not accept Jesus' identity as the one who is able to provide such hope for humanity. They won't accept it. Is anyone like that in here? Is there anyone like that in here this morning that says, you know, I've heard of this, I was dragged in here this morning, or I've been dragged in here for years, and I've heard of this Jesus, but I will not, and maybe you just haven't come out and said it, but your life, it's like a mule, like you've just dug in your heels on this, and you said, I will not accept, your life communicates that you will not accept Jesus' identity as able to provide you with the hope that he brings for all humanity, including you. That is, that you can have your sins forgiven, right? You see, their unbelief here in the text causes them to be more incensed against him, and the conflict intensifies. You know, you can appreciate that the lines are drawn. And so many religious people, it's hard to get the lines drawn, right? Because they, they, like we, I should say, we know how to play the game really, really well. 
And so we have a lot of, we know how to, you know, in terms of how to look religious, talk religious. And so sometimes when you're trying to discern where, where another religious person is at, it's hard to know where they're truly at, where their heart is truly at with God. Because like these Pharisees, we are good at pretending and playing the game really well, Right? And what I appreciate about this is that Jesus does a great job of, of getting the lines drawn. But it would have been so easy for him to get along with these guys and these guys to feel good about him. And him to pretend that he feels good about them. It would have been very easy, but he doesn't. The lines are drawn, the conflict intensifies. In fact, if we just kind of arbitrary... But at this point, if we were to say that, that from chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 6, uh, that, that if we were to put it on a scale of 1 to 10, right, uh, in terms of the conflict, um, I'd say we're at a 7 right now. So 1, level 1, would be you hurt my feelings and we'll probably still be great friends, right? Level 10, I'm going to kill you. Right? Well, it gets to level 10. Okay? It gets to level 10. If you want to jump ahead, you can. Just read there in chapter 3, verse 6. See, by the end of the section, they're at level 10 plotting to kill him. He doesn't get very far down the road, does he, Jesus? Before people start planning and plotting to take his life. We're in chapter, I guess by chapter 3. It starts happening in chapter 2. Gospel claim of forgiveness creates conflict. And I wonder, what kind of conflicts has it created in your life? And it probably looks a little different. It could just be your resistance to receiving it. But what a blessing <laughs> to be the man on the mat. I mean, before he's healed, folks. <sighs> right? Can you be the man on the mat before he's told to get up and walk? Can we? Is that what we're after? Because that that's what Christ is introducing to us, him, himself. There's lots of fruit that comes. And sometimes it includes dealing with our circumstance and, and freeing us from the mats of life, right? And blessing us. But sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we're just stuck on the mat. But we can still with, live with that hope, right? Just like the man on the mat before he was able to walk. And I believe it. And we see it. We're receiving that claim of forgiveness and prioritizing that we have such a, a beautiful, wonderful Savior that is so willing and able and capable and powerful and has the authority to deal with my soul, even though sometimes the circumstance don't always get dealt with the way I want to. This he'll take care of. Or am I in a place of, of prioritizing uh, my, my circumstantial desires over what I really need? 
right? And in that, I'm in conflict with his offer of forgiveness. Does that make sense? I think, I think we get in conflict with his offer of forgiveness. I think we tend to think, that's nice, uh, but I'm stuck in my life right now because of A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and finances, and job loss, and relationship, and this, and that, and, right? And so the ministry, and the comfort, and the peace of Son, your sins are forgiven. It does not warm us and draw us in like it should. And in that sense, that's what I'm saying. Are we in conflict with this offer? Okay. Next, the gospel target creates conflict. Let's look. Follow as I read verses 13 through 17. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who were following him. When the scribes, who were Pharisees, saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he told them, Is it not those who are well who need a doctor? It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. It is not those who are well who need a doctor. those who are sick. The target is the outcast, right? We see that beginning in 13. The target is the outcast. And the target of these outcasts, which as we see there in the text, were sinners and tax collectors. The target of these outcasts intensifies the conflict with those in unbelief who were the scribes, which were Pharisees, as the text says. And the hostility in their hearts finally makes its way to their mouth, and they are willing to say something about their frustration and their anger. Again, isn't it nice to have the lines drawn so that you can see, right? And so that's what happens. And so they confront Jesus' disciples about what? They confront Jesus' disciples about Jesus' dinner party. Really? But what's wrong with having a nice dinner party? Right? The issue was his friends were not the type of people a righteous person associates with. In verse 17, it says that when Jesus heard that they were having problems with the type of people that he was associating with. When Jesus heard this complaint, he told them, that is, he told these Pharisees, is it not, look there at 17, he says to them, is it not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick? 
I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus answers these guys and their concerns very clearly so that they understand God's gospel target. Because this is the direction that Jesus is going to be heading from the very beginning. He had to make it clear. It was just part of who he was. It was part of his heartbeat. He couldn't hide it, right? It was just, it's, it's all part of the message. God is the doctor, Jesus the doctor, and he comes to heal. And what a waste if he spends his time around people that are well. It's very simple, Right? As he says, he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners, right? He didn't come to call those who think they're righteous, but those who are sinners and see it. Did you hear that? Jesus didn't come to call those who think they're righteous, but those who are sinners and they see it, right? There in verse 13 and 14, it seems as if Jesus is deliberately trying to get the Pharisees to hate him. Doesn't it? It's like, come on, man, you could have. It seems, right? When we're thinking about from our angle, he could have toned it down a little bit, right? But he's simply being deliberate, right? He's not deliberately trying to get them to hate him. He's simply being deliberate about seeking after people which the gospel calls. That's what he's doing, right? Which are what? Which are the outcasts of Jewish society. And as we're reading there in 14, with the proper contextual understanding, we can't believe our eyes, actually, right? He calls who? Levi. Who's Levi? Levi is a tax collector. And most tax collectors are cheats and liars, right? right. It, in, in Scripture, that's, that's just how it was back then. That's how they function. That doesn't mean that Levi was, but most of them were. Worse, though, if you think of it, these tax collectors, the reason why they were not received by a good Jew at that time, is that these tax collectors worked for Herod Antipas and the Romans. So Levi worked for this guy. If you are attempting to reach the Jews, which Jesus was, you don't call on people they despise to be in your close-knit circle, which is exactly what Jesus did. But I want to share something with you that's important in just small, short little point. Right? Pragmatism doesn't drive Jesus' decision. Right? Pragmatism doesn't drive Jesus' decision. The target of his gospel is his driving motive. And what does it do? It sends him to the outcast. It sends him to those who violate the established social and religious norms. And so there he is in Levi's house, of all places. And we know that Levi is later named Matthew, right? There he is in Matthew's house enjoying a meal with a bunch of cheats and common sinners. Right? Well, most of us in here, that would be accept, unacceptable. By sinners, Mark means those individuals who were untaught in the law and did not follow the religious standards like the Pharisees. Essentially common people, but not common by our standards. Common in the sense that, that their position towards the law and the religion of the day. 
And some of these common people, so to speak, were more corrupt than others in terms of their moral habits, but none caring much about living up to the law code like the religious Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, they thought the law made them righteous, so they didn't put themselves in the sinner's camp, did they? They spoke of tax collectors and sinners, but they were always speaking of others. Uh, They didn't realize that they were crooked. Now, they could uh, point to all kinds of sins in their life that they didn't do. I don't do this. I don't do that. How about you? Can you point to all kinds of sins in your life that you, did, that you don't do, that you don't participate in? Or can you point to all kinds of religious practices in your life that you do participate in? That could be a good thing, right? That's what they did, but it wasn't a good thing. For them, as they could point to all these sins that they didn't do and point to all the troubled spots in other people's lives, their pride grew in their hearts and in their lives. They thought their rule following made them righteous, and what they did is they put their trust in themselves. And we, I think, could be tempted to do the same, right? And so I ask the question, are you tempted to trust in yourself this morning? You come in here tempted to trust in yourself. But, and I just want to tell you, when you're trusting in yourself and we're singing these songs and we're eating this meal, those songs and this meal and this word of forgiveness does not taste nearly as good. If you're trusting in yourself, it doesn't taste good because you don't need it, right? And that's where the Pharisees were at, right? Are you tempted to trust in yourself? There's a story of those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they looked down on others. Two men, here's the story, right? Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. Here's how that Pharisee was praying, right? God, I thank you. So there he is, right? He's at the tomb. He's praying so people can God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. God, I thank you. I, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get, right? So that was the one man. And then there was another guy, right? There was a tax collector standing far off who would not even raise his eyes to heaven, right? So the, the Pharisee was raising his, God, I thank you, I'm not like other men. Then the tax collector was more like standing off at a distance, would not raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus, in telling this story, what does he say about these two individuals? The tax collector or the righteous Pharisee? What does he say? Jesus says, I tell you, it was the tax collector, the one that's saying, God, have have mercy on me, a sinner. That was the one that went away justified. Not the other one. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And the one that was saying, I'm so glad I'm not like all those fools out there. Look how they live their life. Look how they're wasting their life. Can you believe, right? 
Right? And, and uh, he's naming things. Look at how they act. They don't even go to church on Sunday. Look how they act. All their lottery tickets they're buying at the gas station. They need the wisdom that I have. Look at how they act. Right? And on and on and on. The temptation to target the well, the temptation to target the healthy, the so-called righteous, is not isolated to the Pharisees in Mark 2. Right? We have the right message, okay, as the church, but we can waste time because we have the wrong target. Right? Interestingly, after we come to Jesus and see our sin and turn to him, he gives us new clothes, right? Jesus does. He gives us a new wardrobe, new robes, righteous robes to wear by faith, right? And we get those robes, and we can start to forget where we came from, right? We can start to begin to walk out our Christian faith and we forget where we came from. We can start to think, I'm glad I'm not like so-and-so. And we have to guard against that. One thing I love about my mom is that she never forgot and has never forgotten where she came from. Literally, when I think about her stories that she continues to tell today, even my kids, right? Where she came from was a very hard life. A little tiny house, right? Eight brothers and sisters, right? And not the cool tiny house like that reality TV. I think there's a reality. Right? She had a dirt floor, bathroom outside, and that's is up north, by the way, okay? So it's snowier and colder, right? Worse, she's abused physically by her dad. And she has never forgot where she came from. And it informs her how she receives in this life. Both the good and the bad, Right? And it informs how she sees others in this life. Right? The ones that are easy to love and the ones that are hard to love. But it's because I believe she never forgot, never forgets how God redeemed her from the chaos and mess that was her life. You see, as Christians, we must guard against the self-righteous attitude. I am glad... I'm not like so-and-so. And we guard against that self-righteous attitude by realizing how much we're just like so-and-so. But by the mercy and grace of God, we have been set on a new path. Amen? See, if we were to have the gospel target be the outcast that Jesus came for, we must regularly be reminded and humbled by the fact that that was the group we were part of. 
And that ministers to my heart. I hope it ministers to yours. It's also convicting. It's also convicting because I am tempted to not do that. I am tempted to be annoyed and to put off and to shut out those who are too much different than me. But as his church, we've got to remind, be reminded as we take a look at our souls before we met Christ and how messed up they were. And if we could get a picture of that church, I believe that we would have a heart and a passion for those around us who are just in as much of a mess as we were at one point. So Lord, right, would you by the power of your spirit help us see who we truly were and what condition we truly were in before we knew of this gospel and how to partake of it. Right? Because I think that will give us a passion, a desire, a zeal for the outcast that Jesus came to rescue. The outcast of which we were part. We're a part. Let us receive this forgiveness so that we might be healed. And let us look to bring this good news to others who are yet to be with us so that they too may be healed. And let us not judge, like prejudge the situation. And what I mean by that is that we're tempted to say of someone who looks very messy on the outside, surely Jesus is not ready for that one to come in yet. Someone else must tend to them. They need to be cleaned up a little bit before they make their way here. And I don't think we're that type of people, but we must guard against becoming that. Right? Because it is the gospel, it is Christ, it is forgiveness that transforms us and changes us and deals with us. Right? And so let us not be afraid to continue and to sacrificially get involved as Jesus modeled for us to reach uh, the outcast like us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that in your mercy and grace you have set us on a new path. Thank you that we were the object of your affection, that we were the uh, we're who you targeted, the outcast. The sinners, the ones in great need, may we be humbled by that fact this morning. And may it stir us to look inward and then to look outward at who you might have us reach, who you might have us befriend, who you might have us uh, recline with and have a dinner party with. And God, I, I think what will see if we listen to your word and the power and the direction of your spirit, what we will see is those we will look to have over and minister to will not always be ones that are like us now. And it won't always be easy. And it will take sacrifice. And it will cost but Lord, help us to have eyes like you had eyes for us. Help us to have eyes for others. And bring those 
who are a mess in through these doors. Bring those, Lord Jesus, who are a mess like us in through those doors. Bring those who acknowledge that they are sinners in need and keep us humble so that we see that we are in need. In Jesus' name, we ask these things to be done. Amen.